the Y curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Justice delayed? Justice denied? How many innocent people remain in prison for crimes they didn't commit just because the system is too slow and cumbersome to exonerate them? The post office scandal show how hard it is to turn around miscarriages of justice even when it's clear to all that the courts got it wrong. And when every few years a case does get overturned and someone walks free after many years of wrongful imprisonment, the public outrage at a wasted life never seems to speed up the process of putting things right. So what needs to change? How can we make sure that those behind bars for what they didn't do get swift justice? The why curve. I mean, it is a difficult situation with the, uh, the the post office because on the one side, obviously these people want to see, you know, it's, it's, it's emerged clearly there's been a massive miscarriage of justice yeah. and, and people knew through the whole process. Many hundreds of people. That something was going wrong. Yeah. And uh, so, but then how do you pay them quickly, the money back? Well, you- it, it, it's, it's, it's even beyond the money thing. It's how do you actually overturn their guilt in the first place? Yeah. Because these people, many hundreds of them were convicted. Many of them went to prison. And even despite that, they've only managed about 70 or 80 cases have been cleared. They've yeah. actually said, no, no, you didn't do it after all, despite the fact that it's pretty obvious that almost all of them have been. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, do you just then say, well, OK, there's been a miscarriage, broad miscarriage of justice. Let's just let them all off. Well, that is, that is what the government's proposing at the moment. But, uh, but of, then, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of then, judges are saying, hang on a second, this is not a, a very bad precedent, isn't well, it? Well, really? it is. It, it is. But, but the point more generally is that there are many cases... Um, apart from the post office, where people have been banged up for many, 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 many years. And again, it's been pretty clear from fairly early on that there's something not quite right with this, but getting a case reopened is an enormously difficult thing to do. And expensive, actually. Hugely expensive. That's why a lot of people work pro bono on these things, Mm. otherwise it wouldn't happen. Yeah, And Um, I wonder as well, even if just not cases getting reopened, just people not going to appeal because mm. they have got to the stage where they just have run out of money. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, in theory, there's legal aid, but there's a whole issue, of course, to do with that. Um, <laughs> well, do you know which has gone down by yeah, basically yeah, yeah. 90%? The threshold for yeah. being able to get legal aid yeah. has uh, means it's the number of cases has gone down by 90% yeah. over the last 10 yeah. years or so. so. I mean, it, it's just a question, really, of acknowledging, which the system obviously doesn't want to acknowledge that it's gone wrong. Mm. Um, because, you know, if, if you've had a trial and the theory is, you know, British justice delivers the right verdict and it's all as it should be, then yeah. the idea that actually, no, it didn't. So, when is it happening? I mean, if you take out the post office as mm. you know as an example and put that aside, I wonder whether we're seeing more miscarriages of justice or less. You would well, have thought mm. that there's so much more information available now that you know if you if you're tracking somebody, you can see what their online behaviour yeah. has been. You know, there's geo tagging, so you can see where people have been. And there's but, video cameras everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. we're being surveyed to the you know to the hilt. But but the you know a lot of it comes down to the crown prosecution service and the police and and in the past, the police have certainly done things in ways that, mm. you know, are slightly questionable. I mean, you, obviously, a long way back, you talk about the Guildford Four, Birmingham Six, lots of notorious cases of miscarriages yeah. of justice, which took, you know, 20 years to overturn. Mm. Um, so maybe things are better than that. But we've had very recently, uh, the Malkinson case, for example, this poor man who was jailed for rape uh, and spent uh, tens, decades in prison uh, for something he didn't do. And, and, and it was pretty clear pretty early on that they knew that. Yeah. Uh, but they just didn't overturn 
turn. They didn't make the thing turn into that. So, I mean, what kicks off the process then? If somebody is in prison for something they didn't do, how does that start? The you know, how do you start the ball rolling? Well, once you've gone beyond the appeal, the initial appeal process, mm. and if, if that hasn't worked, then uh, then you have to try and get your case in front of the Criminal Cases Review Commission (CCRC). That is the actual mechanism put in place after things like the Birmingham Six and the, and the Guildford Four to try and make the system work better. But it is incredibly slow, incredibly unwieldy, yeah. extremely inefficient. I say this with some knowledge because many years ago, and we're, we're going to talk to, to Glenn in a moment, Glenn Maddox, the solicitor. Right. Um, but I worked with him. Gonna, oh, right, yeah, so you're not going to tell me you spent 25 no, years God, inside. No, I didn't. Yeah. You've worked for the BBC for that long. Well, it's it's, it's, enough it's of equivalent, sentence. yeah. yeah. Um, but but, but no, we, Glenn and I worked on a case. It was a guy I was visiting in prison who uh, it was an extremely dodgy case in terms of his conviction for murder, uh, and we worked hard to try and get over time. We got nowhere, absolutely nowhere, because you just getting to that first stage of getting to look at it is immensely difficult. Right. But I guess, I mean, they have to have some sort of filtering mechanism because otherwise everybody would be going, right, OK, yeah. well, I'm going to appeal. Well, it, it, of is... course, and, you know, the classic thing is everyone in prison is innocent. But mm. that's it, actually. When I've, I've done a bit of prison visiting, and most people don't. It's not like that. Mm. You know, there's a kind of acknowledgement generally. But there are people, and you bump into them, who... It does seem were the victims of miscarriage of justice in one form or another that they weren't listened to, that they didn't get the right the rights they're supposed to have, all kinds of things like this. Mm. Even translation in this guy to so this guy I'm talking about, he spoke only Chinese when he went into the prison system, and they gave him at his trial a translator from the wrong form of Chinese. So I mean, it just couldn't have gone worse. <laughs> I mean, it was horrendous, and this man was jailed for life, right? Um, because his defence wasn't very good because he couldn't understand what was going pretty on. Pretty much, pretty mm. much, and yeah. he and he said he said to me he hadn't got a clue what was going on really and, and, and learnt English over the years and finally worked out what had gone on. And if you do, I mean, if you get to the end of this whole process and you're found that there has been a miscarriage of justice, how do you compensate somebody well, who's just had their life taken from them? That's the big thing. And until very recently, believe it or not, if you were found to be innocent and freed from prison, they yeah. would then dock, charge you. They yeah. would then charge you for the amount of time you spent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable, really. Well, yeah. let's, let's talk to someone who knows this all in great detail. It's Glyn Maddox. Glyn Maddox KC, in fact, is an honorary KC solicitor, and he spent many years working to overturn miscarriages of justice cases. He's, in fact, co-founder of the Centre for Criminal Appeals, which is a charity that, that campaigns in this area, and he joins us now. So what sorts of, of crimes are people being sentenced for which are most commonly found to be a miscarriage, miscarriage of justice? Are they, do they tend to be actually the more serious crimes, like murders? Well, it, obviously it's difficult to actually... I don't think anyone's done any detailed analysis of that. I mean, the CCRC, Criminal Cases Review Commission, gets approximately 1,500 cases uh, or applications each year. Um, quite a considerable number of those are magistrates' court cases where, you know, someone may have had some sort of brush with the law in terms of even something minor, um, not necessarily a long prison sentence or whatever, but feel that they, you know, they're, they're innocent or that they've suffered a miscarriage of justice. But the, the ones, the ones that become high profile, the ones that in a way are interesting is are the ones where someone has been in prison for a significant amount of time. And there's actually an argument or a, uh, you know, a, there's merit in their case and their argument that they're putting forward. Those are the cases that really hit the headlines. And, um, and, and, and to get to that stage where you get to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, I mean, you would have had to, obviously, you, you, your case would have been heard, you would have been uh, You would have gone through the appeal process. Yeah, well, you, you would, would have gone process. through the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. a lot of money would have been spent at that stage. Well, I mean, that's one of the big issues. Um, uh, and there's a sort of anecdotal story about a guy in somewhere in, you know, up and down the country, I don't know where it was, 
who who uh, was found guilty and turned to his solicitor and said, um, you know, what do I do now? I, I didn't do it. What do I do um, about the fact that, you know, uh, uh, that that I was innocent, and the and the solicitor said, "Well, you, I don't think there's an appeal here to the court of appeal because nothing went wrong with the actual trial or whatever." Judges summing up all those sort of technical things. Uh, I don't think there are grounds for an appeal, but uh, there is, I think, some organisation set up in the Midlands. I don't know where exactly. Um, which you can apply to. <laughs> Over to you because I'm afraid I've run out of money. Uh, legal aid has stopped now. Um, and you know they may they may take in an interest in your case. Interesting. Um, so talking about something being technically correct. I mean, it was you know a case that was technically correct, apart from the fact that it got the wrong answer. But, but that's and the problem, happened. isn't it? Because you have a jury system. In the end, Glenn, and they are the people who decide guilt or not innocence. And juries can obviously yes. get it wrong. But 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 actually, who, who are we to turn that over? It has to be something wrong with the process or, or new evidence, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. New evidence is absolutely crucial. And that doesn't exist in very many cases. I mean, people have written to me in the past and they said, I, I'm, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. And I'll write back to them and say, well, explain to me, you know, where the fresh evidence is that we can put in front of the commission or maybe even the Court of Appeal if we haven't been to the appeal court yet. Uh, that's going to to change people's mind about what the jury came came the conclusion that the jury f reached. Um, that's the problem we've got. the The appeal court traditionally isn't only looks at the mechanics of the trial. It doesn't really look at the innocence or otherwise of the of the p person concerned. Um, they would look at whether the judge is summing up whether the was was okay was sound whether all the various points were put in front of the jury um, whether the barristers did their job properly although um, that's another interesting issue um they won't interfere with the decision of the jury unless it was so perverse to be you know incredibly which is an incredibly rare situation it's, well, let's, it's, let's it's, look at that situation yeah. so you know you you, you hypothesize this guy who or a person who has been found guilty and the trial ticked all the boxes, yeah. but the evidence was adjudged by the jury to be sufficient, you know, beyond uh, beyond reasonable doubt, and yeah. they've convicted them. In that situation, as you say, they can only appeal if they have some problem with the original trial. Yeah. What do they do if that doesn't happen? Well, you know, you're, you're innocent, you well, go to prison, then, what then? Then we're back to the CCRC. We're making an application to the CCRC um, saying, uh, I'm innocent, um, my... Uh, trial took place, um, you know, a year or so ago. I've been, now been to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal have turned my appeal down, but I still want you to have a look at my case. And the CCRC will then go through a sort of screening process, and they'll say, "Okay, explain to us why you're why why you uh, didn't do it. What other fresh evidence is there? Is there a new witness? Is there some DNA?" Um, is there something? This is what they should do, by the way. I'm not necessarily mm. saying that they do it. I mean, in Malkinson's case, they they obviously didn't do that properly. Um, hence the, the 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 Ferrari and the and the high profile well, nature of his. Yeah, let, let's get into that because we mentioned Malkinson. Just just tell yeah. us what happened with the Malkinson case. It was quite recent. 
this was a man who was convicted of rape. Is that right? It was a man who was convicted of rape. Um, there was, uh, it was, uh, uh, he was picked up. Um, there was evidence, um, not very good evidence uh, against him. The, the police effectively didn't do a very good job. They didn't send the, uh, the, the samples off to be tested. Um, even though there was samples that were found on the victim, which, uh, clearly weren't, weren't, uh, which turned out to not be uh, Andrew Malkinson, and that lay on police you know, or in police files or in in uh, in in the archives for quite a considerable time. Um, then, when he applied to the CCRC, they didn't effectively um, scratch the surface, and they didn't um, do the work that they should have done to actually have the the DNA that was available that wasn't Malkinson's tested. Had they done so much earlier on, he would have been released much earlier, or his appeal would have gone forward much How earlier. How long did he spend in prison? 17 years. Wow. So after that time, I would want, I don't know if revenge is the right word, but I'd like to see someone taking the blame and for me to get some money back for that from the person who is responsible. It sounds like no one can take the blame for this. Exactly. There was a guy who did uh, um, uh, very similar to Andrew, Andrew Malkinson, a guy called Victor Neal, and it didn't hit the headlines in quite the same way. Um, he he had a similar circumstances, some DNA that was available that wasn't tested. The CCRC said it was speculative, that it was a fishing expedition. They weren't going to to um, to have the, the DNA tested. Eventually, I think his solicitor extracted the DNA from the uh, CCRC and had it independently tested, and that proved that it wasn't Victor Nealon. Wow. Um, mm. So there's there's a bit of history in the CCRC and not not being as proactive as they should be, particularly where DNA is concerned, because obviously that DNA can prove one way or the other pretty clearly whether or not you were responsible in certain but, ca- but cases. It, I- if I spent 17 years in jail for something which boils down to, you know, in the first place, is negligence by the police, by individual police officers. All, can't, can't all, I, by, can't all I, by the CCRC. All by the CCRC as well. Can't I sue these people? Well, that's an interesting point. I think um, Victor Neal and solicitors did think about whether or not there was a duty of care on the CCRC to him. I'm not quite sure what was concluded, but I don't think he ever pursued a claim against the CCRC for the lost years that that he had. I I wonder whether or not Andrew Malkinson might might be pursuing a claim. I think what everyone's waiting for is that there are two inquiries and being undertaken at the moment. One by uh, Chris Henley KC, in, which is an internal inquiry that the CCRC has set up in the Malkinson case, and then there's a much more wide ranging inquiry that the Lord Chancellor has set up. Um, which will look at the CCRC, um, the CPS, and Greater Manchester Police's involvement. If those uh, reports, which are going to take a while, certainly the later, the latter one, to conclude that there was negligence on the part of either one of those bodies, I suspect that Malkinson will be able to pursue a claim. But it, it seems in the whole process, it just looks from an outsider point of view, is it's it's grinding incredibly slowly and not working as as well as it should. Um, what, what is it that needs to change? <laughs> uh, well, a more money, but everything seems to have that 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 attached to it nowadays. Um, a, a more c- a commitment on the part of the, effectively, the Ministry of Justice to to put more resources and more more firepower in the hands of the CCRC. The high, the CCRC since the financial crisis has, has suffered more cuts than almost any other part. Well, certainly the Ministry of Justice has suffered more part, more cuts, a 38% cut in its budget. 
But the CCRC has suffered as a result of that. Its budget is now um, significantly depleted in terms of what where, where it was when it was first set up. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an idea. I, I recently reread the second reading debate in the House of Commons when the, and it was all party, it was in the mid 90s, when MPs had to look at the uh, findings of the Royal Commission and, and decide whether or not they wanted uh, the CCRC to be established. This was uh, in the wake of, of, the, of the Guildford Four, Birmingham it. Six. All the way. wake of the Guildford Four, uh, the Runciman Commission, Royal Commission was set up. That recommended a, the CCRC. The parliamentarians then, who'd been in a way fed up with having constituents write to them saying, you know, can you look into this case? Can you look into that case? My son, my daughter, my brother or whoever is is is, is in prison for 20 years for something they didn't do. And they were delighted that this organisation was going to be established and 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 I think they all naively thought that you know uh, someone would be wrongly committed convicted they would then um write to the CCRC make an application within a few months they'd be exonerated that's what they thought at the time most of the cases that I have de I deal with the pe the person concerned has already done their sentence I mean, uh, 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 the, the one we're going to be talking about perhaps a bit later on, Oliver Cowell, his sentence was over in 2000. He was convicted in 1991. Uh, he did his 10 or so years. Uh, he's been fighting for justice ever since. Now, don't that isn't what Parliament intended. It didn't intend for the CCRC to take 24 years or 34 years or however long to 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 look at a case but that's that's the problem we've it isn't got justice uh, is it i mean it can't be justice delayed is justice denied i think it was martin luther luther king wasn't it yeah <laughs> so tell us about that case then because it it seems like a lot of them are that yeah it's just people in the wrong place at the wrong time absolutely uh, oliver is a um uh he's now f mid 50s 53 uh he had a quite a severe brain injury when he was a small child um, he's what is called vulnerable, disadvantaged, mentally handicapped or whatever. Um, he's six foot four, which is, you know, he makes quite an impression um, physically. Uh, he's supposed to, with another guy, have gone into a shop in Hackney um, in uh, July 1990 and uh, at point blank range shot the shopkeeper in the head. Now, uh, because of his disabilities, because of his problems, most people who know him very well would have a, a said he wasn't capable of doing anything like that. But if a gun had been fired in his presence, uh, he would have become a jelly on the floor. Uh, so it, it, he was also supposed to have um, uh, managed to make a sling or a holster with a couple of pieces of string and held it under his arm. Um, now, I couldn't do that, let alone Oliver. I'm absolutely convinced that Oliver couldn't have done it. Um, and then he and the uh, other person ran out of the shop, leaving a tin of ken tenant's beer on the counter, which they brought in with them, and they then um, disappeared. Um, um, a few months later, Oliver was picked up. Uh, the other guy, who was a guy called Eric Samuel, who's now dead, um, owned up to being the, uh, involved but and, and, and said all along that Oliver wasn't with him. And this was a murder case, is that right? This is a murder case, yeah. Yeah, a murder case in, 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 in Hackney. In so, why, so why was Oliver placed there then? So you got the, the well, one person who was involved saying he wasn't, and yet there's still a, there's he was... A, there's a BBC Rough Justice programme, which is on the internet, called If the Cap Fits. Uh, the only thing that linked Al Oliver with the case um, was the fact that his 
cap was found. It's called, it was quite a distinctive cap, a British knight's cap, which he'd bought, which he owned, which he accepted was his, which was found a few hundred yards from the scene of the crime as the two guys were running away. That cap, according to Oliver, had been stolen from him uh, and taken off his head uh, by one of the gunmen earlier on that evening um, when they were all up in the West End. So he knew the people involved in some form? He knew he knew one of them. He knew a guy called Eric Samuel. He didn't know the other one. Um, uh, he certainly didn't know it or anything about you, people using guns or where you would get guns from or anything like that. Um, then there was... So he was picked up in November, uh, and then there was a series of interviews with police officers, um, which ended in Oliver after about a, uh, in without the, his solicitor being present, uh, making a confession. Right. But that, 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 that happens under, quite a bit, I think. Yeah, but it? Under, it does. under Pace, the, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, that's not uh, supposed to happen, is it? Absolutely. Certainly isn't. But, you know, Pace was six years old at that time um, and was still, you know, what we could perhaps call, you know, being generous, bedding in. Um, uh, the, the, the two police officers, one of whom subsequently became a criminal barrister, um, Oliver was no match for them. Um, they were ri- running rings around him. Effectively, he, he calls. The, he's, he, he says now that he was stitched up. I mean, he's one of his disabilities is an appalling memory. So, bearing in mind this was November and the events took place in July, he wouldn't have been able to have any idea what was happening or what he was wearing or where anything was. And and so he sort of made up stuff. Like they asked him at one point what color the gun was, and he said black. And actually, it turned out it was silver. I mean, all that sort of stuff was was just and, fictitious. And yet he was convicted. Oh yeah, he was convicted. I mean, that's one of the mysteries of well, this case. Well, he confessed, Roger. Well, he I mean, confessed. The only evidence there was yeah. no DNA. Yeah. There were no the, yeah. the the only identification evidence was um, someone who the judge said if we were relying on this uh, this person as uh, to give identification evidence, I would I would take I would withdraw it from the jury immediately. This case, so he was a very unreliable person. So effectively, what convicted Oliver was his confession. I'm looking at another case I saw online, similar, a guy called Sean Hodgson, uh, charged with yes. murder in 1979. He confessed okay. to detectives who, who tracked it in court, but still spent 27 years in prison. It was only when they, they got DNA evidence that showed he wasn't anywhere near it. that they Absolutely. And his yeah, compensation it. was uh, £1.70 for every year he spent in jail. He got paid £46. I, I mean, well, that's, it's, it's his, his whole life taken away from him. So, One of the things that didn't come up in Malkinson, which although the media was very interested in the case, it seemed to get the issue of compensation completely wrong. It got it got it got tied up in knots about uh, Borden Lodge, mm. if you remember. Um, Borden Lodge was an, an amount of money that was with that was withheld from your compensation. Uh, to represent the time that you spent in prison, which was disgraceful. And the government over one weekend in the summer decided to change that Yeah. Um, after pressure from the media and various people. But actually the bigger issue is the fact that since 2014, people don't get compensation anymore anyway. Mm. There's uh, no compensation. There is no compensation unless you can prove beyond reasonable doubt. Okay, so they've reversed the... The burden of proof, which we've had in this country for, I don't know, a thousand years or so, they've reversed that um, once you've been exonerated um, or your conviction has been quashed. You now have to prove beyond reasonable doubt, which is what Andy Malkinson has to prove, that he didn't do it. Andy Malkinson may be able to do that because of the DNA. Oliver 
wouldn't be able to do that. How can he prove beyond reasonable doubt that he uh, he didn't he he didn't do it? He can't. That's a massive hurdle for him. That is extraordinary. So just take us through what happened with your your man Oliver. So he yeah. he was in prison for ten years. 10, 11 years, yeah. And then and then was out on licence, I'm guessing. He's, he's remains on licence. That's one of his big issues now, that he might be able to travel to America or wherever if his conviction is quashed. At the moment, he couldn't do that. So what was, what, was the process, what was the process of actually getting his case reopened? How, how, what was the mechanism of doing that? Because as you said, that, that's took, the problem. I took his case over in, 19, in 2000 um, uh, and looked at it and uh, I got some enormous help from a, a very experienced QC in those days, Casey now, Michael Burnburn, and he, he and I are still working on the case 24 years later. Um, we, uh, we were very keen on the Rough Justice team doing a, a detailed uh, investigation because obviously they can find things that we haven't got the resources to find, and they did. They managed to track down, for instance, Eric Samuel. They covertly recorded him. And they asked him, did you know, did you do the robbery? Yes. Did was Oliver with you? No. And we've got a tape. You can you can look at it yourself and you can see that, that what he says. So we, uh, with that, um, that uh, record, that investigation, which Rough Justice had undertaken, we then made an application to the CCRC in about 2003, 2004, ask and asked them to. Uh, refer Oliver's case. Um, two years later, against, uh, you know, much to our surprise, they decided not to refer it, even oh. though it was a pretty clear case, we thought, and still do, obviously. Um, and then we were left thinking, well, what could, should we do? So we judicially reviewed um, the CCRC's decision. Um, needless to say, the... the so the, you took uh, it to a court for judicial we review? We took it to the court for judicial review, uh, the court um, said we're not involved. We don't want to get involved in the nitty gritty of this. It's not for us to decide whether or not they should have referred it or not. It seems not an unreasonable decision, you know, using the the reasonableness test that they use for judicial review. And they turned us down, even though you know, as far as we were concerned, it was a black and white case. So I wonder how so many we, how many cases do you think are not getting to uh, not getting to the to the review uh, or thousands. even getting to appeal. Literally thousands. Right. But, and, and, and I wonder how many of them are similar circumstances where... Do you have any idea how many cases out of every hundred the CCRC refer? Or the ones submitted to them? You're going to tell me like 1% or something like that? It's between 1% and 3%. Right. Gosh. It's hovered around 3%, but at one year, I think it was 2017 or 18, it went down to below 1%. And then, and then if you start analysing that... Um, the, 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 there's an awful lot of cases, for instance, asylum cases where the law has just been applied wrongly mm. and post office cases. And then the cases that came up recently where there was a bent police officer, Ridgewell, um, who lots of lots of his cases have been referred. The post office cases have, have skewed the numbers completely. And also there was a, a Shrewsbury, some Shrewsbury cases, about 30 people, uh, with with um, what's his name um, Tomlinson, yeah, um, yeah, he was involved in uh, I've forgotten what they called now, but the Shrewsbury cases that was about thirty referrals, and this was 20. to do with with uh, evidence with um... well, just the way in which the law changes and the way in which the CCRC operates, but it, it was a campaign as well. 
Ricky Tomlinson's case was referred. Ah, yes, of course, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was to do with a, with, with a strike, wasn't it? That's right, that's right. Um, so those cases were all referred. So that, that was skewed the numbers as far as the, the CCRC is concerned. But there was an academic called Steve Heaton who did some um, analysis of the referrals that the CCRC has made. And uh, he came to the conclusion that he, every year there was only probably one or two big cases like Oliver's that they actually refer. A lot of the rest of them are just sort of, you know. Well, why, why, why are cases going wrong in the first case? Why in the first place? Why are we having these well, miscarriages of justice? Where you need to, that, you need that to. Is a, that's a brilliant question. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the answer is, I mean, it's, uh, well, I mean, you gave an example of one, which is sort of like coercion by the police. I'm just wondering yeah. also, is is some of it to do with income? So, I mean, for example, I'm looking at cuts in legal aid. So the numbers, uh, the law society saying the number of legal aid cases has gone down from almost a million in 2010 to 130,000 in 2022. So getting on for a 90% decrease. I mean, a lot of these will be very small cases, obviously. But yeah. if, you can't, if you can't afford to defend yourself... Absolutely. Uh, that's an I issue. Mean, that is going to produce more and more miscarriages going forward rather than less. Mm. I mean, the CCRC was tasked, one of its jobs was to look at the criminal justice system and see uh, when cases came through to it, whether there were things that were, were going wrong sort of, you know, generically that they, they, they could suggest, you know, lessons learned or whatever. But as far as I'm aware, they've never really fed that back into the system the system effectively doesn't like to change itself so um and it doesn't like to learn lessons and it doesn't like to um recognize that this mistakes or errors have been made so nothing ever changes and all um, of the information we've got available now so imagine you know a, a case now would be very different to yeah, 20 years DNA ago evidence, all the all dna the kind of we've got things. cameras we, everywhere we've got we've online institutionalized behavior. miscarriages of justice Mm. They're, they're part, they're a factor of our, or a function of our system. Uh, in other words, we de we've decided that we're quite happy if uh, out of a prison population of 85,000, uh, maybe 5,000 people have not, are not guilty. We mm. seem to cope with that. And they, they, they do their time and they come out and they're, um, you know, they they feel very hard, hard done by, understandably, because just imagine how you would feel if you were, in prison, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't hack it. I'd put, I'm, exactly. I'm almost saying I'd try and kill myself. I think it, if I was it, well, there you are. Then yeah. there you yeah. are, and some of them do. Yeah. Some of them do. But the point is um, that with this new evidence, the kind of things we've got, like DNA and cameras and things, surely the chances of a miscarriage of justice are smaller because we can be more certain of guilt, can't we? Yeah, well, that was, my, that was my point. Yeah, we've got so much more information these days. Does that make it easier, or can we get more circumstantial the number of The number of exonerations using DNA in the states is sort of, I don't know. 300, 500, something like that. In this country, it's something like five or six. DNA hasn't been a magic um, a magic bullet for lots and lots of people in this country. It's very, very minor. Uh, and the other issue you've got when you talk about CCR, CCTV is, you know, it's it's hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of, of looking through CCTV. Lots mm -hmm. of, you know, there, it's a massive issue of disclosure. Um, there was that case recently uh, where, where it was only during the the trial that the um, the prosecuting counsel said, "Have we looked at this evidence from this person's phone?" It was a rape case. I don't know if you remember. Yes, it. I do. Yeah, yeah. Leave, and yeah. he actually stopped the trial there and then. Said, "We need to. We need you, you know you, i.e., the police should go through this lady's phone and and check what she's actually been saying because this guy had been saying." Uh, all the way through his his defence, that you know, 
she'd led him on or whatever. And and yeah. when they actually checked her phone, which they hadn't done up until then, they found that you know he was what he was saying was correct. So it's kind and of they incompetent. Got, they the charges right in the he system. Would have gone down in other words. Yeah, the, yeah. the incompetence is massive. Absolutely massive. Yes. And, and, and all of those people involved in the miscarriage of justice, which you know can be the legal profession, it can be the police, it could all or it could be witnesses who've lied. Yes. Uh, are there any consequences? Do any of those face any no. consequences whatsoever? No, no, no. Someone asked me recently if any police officer had ever been imprisoned, uh, imprisoned as a result of miscarriage of justice. And the answer is I don't think that they have. I mean, there was the famous case in Cardiff, you know, the Lynette White case. Yeah. Where prison office, uh, where police officers were, you know, years and years later, after they actually did get the right guy, a chap called Jeffrey Gaffour, uh, and then the, the the CPS and the, you know launched prosecutions against a number of police officers for the original errors, and uh, that go well, that went nowhere mm-hmm. because they lost a box of papers that which which was vital halfway through their trial, and uh, and then. You know, the trial was then stopped. Um, they were all, you know, set free. And a, a couple of weeks later, or a month later, they found the box of papers that was vital. I mean, you know, you couldn't make it up. Isn't it? Well, just, well, what, what if you, what, what if somebody is out to get you within the police service and they know you'll go down? You'll go down because you'll go down. Yeah. They won't go down. You're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah you'll go down. And they they will get away because with they it. know the system right but if they but then can they be charged further down the track if it's if it's found that the case was a miscarriage well, theoretically of but whoever charges them perjury i suppose but you'd have to prove it yeah exactly exactly i mean none of the guildford so, four police officers were uh or, or wherever no they were never charged, charged were they? i mean it was it, you know there, there's a sort of one rule for a law for some people and another for others is, is there a particular group or type of people people that are finding that they are more susceptible to a miscarriage of justice so you know ethnicity yes age or black yeah i thought so yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and mental health problems obviously as well as a absolutely a i mean a quarter of our prison population is made up of people with mental health problems mm. uh, and they're the ones who've struggle when it comes to actually you know doing something about the fact that they've been wrongly convicted they 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 can't deal with it i mean the the other the other factor which is vital is that those people who have a solicitor or a barrister helping them um challenge a conviction stand a much 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 better chance of success than those people who do it themselves yeah we have an unequal justice so, system so this oh, is an absolutely. eye-opener to me because i would have thought you know a hundred percent maybe you could get away with one percent but you'd hope that a hundred percent of the people in prison are there because they deserve to be but what if you were to put a percentage figure on it you gave us some numbers before but give it to us as well a percentage. they say somewhere between five and ten percent but no one's ever done any sort of detailed analysis yeah, like 90 like 90 percent is good enough we're happy with 90 percent that's shocking, well, isn't it? I, but but could you change? Could one change the system in a way that made that any better? Do you think, Glenn? I mean, well, is it in a way, our, our adversarial system is is going to produce flaws, isn't it? It's going to produce winners and losers. I mean, I, I had a famous murder case for a few years ago where the, the on the first con- conversation I had with this with the client from prison, he said to me, he was a very bright guy, very articulate. Um, and he he'd been convicted of murdering his wife and two children, which is quite unusual. In fact, um, almost extremely rare. One in a hundred years, sort of thing. Murdering your wife is quite unusual. Murdering your two children, age nine and seven, is extraordinarily rare, apparently. Mm. Um, and he said to me, "If I'd had a decent QC, um, uh, as it then was, 
uh, at my trial, I wouldn't have been convicted. And I said to him, okay, fine. That, that They all say that. So yeah. I took it with a pinch of salt. Um, by chance, a, a year or so later, I was uh, I had lunch um, with the QC for the prosecution, who, um, after a couple of glasses of wine, said, well, I know who you're acting for. Um, um, and he said to me, uh, if he'd have had a decent QC, someone who'd asked the right, made the right points, um, he wouldn't have been convicted. Yeah. I thought, my God, you know, that's justice for you. Yeah, well, I mean, at least, I mean, yeah, for yeah. like five or ten percent of people who find themselves in prison for something they didn't do, yeah, how does it go the other way? What What's the percentage? I wonder well, of people who get exactly. away with it. Exactly, but we've also got this system in this country, which they haven't got in the states, of um, of, of, of almost immunity to criticism of of barristers or solicitors who may may or may not do their job properly. In America, they call it ineffective assistance of counsel. It's a constitutional right, and, and a lot of appeals are based on your solicitor or, well, attorney not doing their job properly. In this country, it's a no-go area. If you say to the CCRC, I, 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 my, my, my legal team was a disaster, they'll say, okay, fine, what do you want us to do about that? The yeah. Court of Appeal won't countenance it. Doesn't work. Well, Glenn, as we're drawing this to, to a close now, let's just go back to your case the oliver case yes, because oliver. we got to the stage where you'd failed to be able to or they they'd failed to reopen the case yeah. how did you finally get to the stage which seems now well, and we should I, say seems to be moving to a conclusion in a way i kept it alive by keeping in touch with oliver he's one of these sort of characters who phones you know once every two or three weeks and says any news is there anything that we can do i mean he's quite a simple soul and i said well you know i'm still thinking and we're still working we're still hoping for something to come along and about 2011 or 12 or something i i um i uh, made contact with, I managed to track down Eric Samuel and I went to see him, hoping that he might be in a position to actually say openly and make a statement, maybe with a solicitor helping him, that Oliver wasn't wasn't involved. Um, that might be crucial in getting it reopened. Um, sadly, I found that he wasn't well um, and he died a year or two later. Um, but he, I did ask him in the meeting I had with him, did Oliver do it? And he said, you know, shook his head and said, no, no, no. But he he was suffering severe mental health problems at that time. Uh, anyway, we still kept it alive in the best way we could. There was a legal, there was a change of, in the law, and we thought we might be able to find a statement that Eric Samuel had made to a solicitor at the time that the Rough Justice Program was was broadcast. Again, that failed. We that st statement had been destroyed. Um, so in uh, about 2018, 1718, uh, I a local MP in Ipswich, a guy called Sandy Martin, to make a speech in the House of Commons, what we call a Westminster Hall speech, uh, where he, uh, you know, made all of these various points about Oliver's conviction. It was a very good speech. And uh, following that, he wrote to Helen Pitcher, the chair of the CCRC, and said, will you re reopen this case? And we're back to MPs and politicians being involved in these cases, which I think is crucial. And she wrote back and said, yes, send us an application and we'll look at it again. Two years later, they referred it. And so it took that. So, I mean, the, the process is extraordinary when you think about it. It's first of all, a, 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 a broadcast programme, Rough Justice, to yes. get somewhere. And, and obviously there are parallels to what happened with the ITV drama about the post office there. Absolutely. But Absolutely. secondly, that in the end, it just happens to be getting an MP to, to write a letter. But It just seems it. extraordinary. Oh. That, I mean, there's no way, I guess, Oliver on his own could ever do that. 
raise no and not in a million years raising the po- profile of the cases i mean that's how what happened with birmingham six Guildford Four, Stephen Kisco. It was about profile. It was about MPs banging the drum. People like Chris Mullin, or you know, or journalists like Paul Foot, or or Ludovic Kennedy. These these people are crucial. You know, David Jessel on Rev Justice. All of these people who you know, they, 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 they and, and people watching TV programs or reading articles. The system shouldn't be like that. Should no, it? I was gonna, if you haven't got the profile or the site or, or the the significance of the mm. crime isn't quite up there, then you're just sitting in prison watching these TV shows about the people as, who've you got know, people standing said, up I think for them. MPs after the CCRC was was uh, um, set up thought you know they, they they've solved this problem now that they handed it over to the CCRC, um, you know problem solved. We don't need to be involved anymore. But actually. They do need to be involved, which is why I've been working with MPs, setting up an all-party parliamentary group on miscarriages of justice to actually bring them back into the frame. Mm. Because in the old days, they would make speeches and they would, you know, raise constitu- you know, constituents' yeah. problems and ministers would take notice. And I've been encouraging other people um, who come to me saying, you know, what do I do about this case or that case? I say, get your local MP to... To make a speech in the House of Commons about this case, you know, set it all out, yeah. um, because that's the only way. I'm afraid that you're going to get, you know, any notice. Well, Glenn, um, I'm going to keep your details on hand because <laughs> it least. seems. I mean, you never know. It's just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I used, well, uh, I used to it, think it the legal, yeah, and I don't thought joke, the legal system joke. was infallible, but obviously oh, not. God. Well, d- d- one of the things in the um, in the case, uh, you know, the first of his case was a couple. I think the, the scriptwriter thought, I'm going to have a dig at the legal system. Uh, one or two of them said, I'm going to put my faith in the British justice system. And I gr- groaned out mm. loud when they said that. I mean, it doesn't work, sadly. We all hope it does. And we've all been brought up to think well, it does, but it doesn't. Well, maybe you will find some element of it does when this case you've been talking about comes up, which I think is the end of February, is that right? End of February, I really hope so. I'd That's be when the decision is made by the, yeah. by the, by the appeal court judges. Yeah. Well, very good luck with that, Brilliant. Glenn. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you very you. much for talking to us. OK, take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Right. Well, that, that, I mean, that, all. I'm completely scared by what could happen. Uh, it is terrifying, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But there well, we none are. Of us, none of us are safe. No. I tell no. you, something else we're not safe from. Come on, tell us. Donald Trump. How very true. Well, uh, we may be. We don't know. We don't well, know the outcome. But I mean, just look. I mean, the support mm. within the Republicans. Yeah. Obviously, uh, I mean, you know, they they are not yes. a party without him. So, and so, its question is, are the Republicans going to win? Well, and you'd, you'd think there's every chance that's yeah, going to happen. It's an extraordinary situation, but we are now at a point where. The man who is standing trial on numerous charges mm. uh, right across the US may very well be the next president of the United States. And I have to say... What, what, what is he going to do? That's well, the question. Concerned. Yeah, I mean, he is a man who's got nothing to lose now. I no. mean, if he's, he's got, he knows he's only got no. one term, he's going to go in there all guns blazing. Uh, and he's going to try and change the and not not change America. He's going to try and change the world in all possibility. And and mm. there is at the moment inside uh, governments across Europe, certainly and elsewhere in the world, people are game playing what they would do yeah. uh, with another Trump presidency. How do fear. we Trump proof the planet? That's is the, the question theory. we're asking. This is the theory. So we're going to talk to someone who can tell us about the kind of questions that are being asked about this, the kind of game playing that's going on in terms of trying to work out whether. 
what it's going to do, for example, to defence, to international relations, to the global so economy. So Donald Trump and Keir Starmer, how are those two going to get on? Well, you're example? making at least two assumptions there. but Yeah, yeah no, with fairly safe assumptions <laughs> there in both cases. Well, no, maybe. maybe not in Trump's case. But, yeah, yes. I mean, uh, just the, you know, the, the shift in politics that's yeah. going to emerge out of all of this. So who's well. going to and who's going to stand up against him? Because he doesn't like anybody standing up against no, him. No, he doesn't. And uh, it will, it's going to change politics quite dramatically globally mm. if he gets in, because people will have to work with an America they haven't really experienced before. Even in or, his first or, term, it wasn't quite like isolate that. an America. Yeah. That, well, so, this know. is the likelihood. Anyway, we will talk about all that next week when we're back. On the Y Curve. See you next week. Thanks Bye. for listening. The Y Curve.